All right, if you, uh, as we wrap up our series on Proverbs today, this is our last topic in Proverbs, uh, we realize this, that the Bible has nothing positive to say about sex is a myth that people often believe. And um, it's actually something that the Bible talks a lot about. And uh, there's a whole book dedicated to it. And um, I don't know, uh, it, well, it seems culturally, and I don't know what your background is like, but there's kind of a, a continuum of how we grow up with this, the topic of sex. And um, thinking about it, and there's kind of uh, the idea more lean towards maybe you grew up hearing, having more of a prudent background, prudence, where it was never talked about. Maybe sex was thought of as um, dirty or unspoken of, and so it was kind of something that, that, that was not talked about. Uh, or uh, you could have grown up, background was perverted in, in, in many ways. Um, I grew up uh, kind of with both. I actually had grandparents who didn't even sleep in the same bed. They slept in separate bedrooms, kind of like the old Lucille Ball for a uh, story of the old uh, sitcom, and as you may know, uh, and it wasn't talked about. It was more of a prudent style, and yet I was an athlete who lived in uh, uh, locker rooms where I heard it perverted and not understood. So I kind of lived between those two extremes. Um, I don't know where you are, but here's the reality. Um, the world has brought this to front stage. It's front stage. Sexual pleasure and, um, and sex is front stage in the world. It's everywhere. And uh, I, I know there's probably not many Advent sermons going on today <laughs> uh, where uh, this is one of them. I, I, my guess is we're the only one. would be probably a safe bet that this is the topic. But the world has brought it to stage, and we're finishing up our thing on Proverbs. And, uh, and sadly enough, we, it, we shouldn't be the church lagging behind and responding to things. We ought to be out front talking about what God, who God is and what he's created. And so we find ourselves responding maybe again. And, uh, and because we've responded badly, maybe, and we've let prudence or perversion lead the day instead of God and his word. So uh, we'll be looking at that. And by the way, just um, it's been front stage from the beginning. The uh, Sex has been. And um, you do realize that in Genesis 2, where God makes the woman and gives him to man, and there the famous line where he sees her for the first time, and he writes a poem or either sings a song. Theologians don't know. He says, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. At last, I mean, he sees her and he does it. You do realize it was two grown adults, naked, both of them, standing and looking at each other. And one of them singing about how great the other one was. And God was right there. <laughs> now that makes you squirm a little bit, right? But that's what it was. That's the beginning of the Bible starts off that way. Do you forget that? Have you let your lenses, that it, it starts off that way. That's human beings' design and where it was. And so, um, this is a, uh, um, it's so important that even in Proverbs, it's the one topic. They can't, Proverbs is really disjointed, and topics are here and a little bit of there. But for three chapters in a row, five, six, and seven, it focuses on this particular topic. It, so even, it, even the, the Lord in, in the Proverbs seems to be zoning in on the centrality 
and the helpfulness of what it means to thrive in his world. So a few, few uh, things for setup to, um, to sort of ground us. Uh, remember this, as with our particular passage, uh, first, is that this context is a father talking to a son. Solomon probably talking to his sons. And this might have been a manual for the training of leaders and the whole Proverbs with for men in the king's courts. So it's a father talking to a son, and oftentimes we forget that. And so this is not a, a passage of portraying women as the evil temptress that's always messing up uh, sex or in some way um, is, is a threat to a man. It's just a dad talking to a son. And so in the natural way, if you were to listen to a father or a mother talking to her daughter, it would just talk differently. That's all the difference is. As a matter of fact, uh, so women aren't evil in this passage. It's just a dad talking. To As a matter of fact, it, it finishes. Remember the, 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 um, the, the last chapter of Proverbs is Proverbs 31, which is the woman in all of her splendor and glory. It's actually a father telling you this is the woman to be esteemed. So remember that. That will be helpful. Okay. Secondly, um, everyone is, um, we are all, everyone in this room, we are all sexually broken. All right? And, um, and unless anybody, these verses we're going to look at here, verses 15, unless, you're, unless uh, sex is something you're continually with bliss and worship and rejoice and continuity and quality and all those things every day and they're in the right balance all the time, unless that's one reason to argue for it, unless that's it, then you're broken because it had a perfection it was designed for. But the other reason is this. This is why I know we're all sexually broken, because we're all broken people. And sin came into our hearts, and we have broken areas of our life, and we are emotional, spiritual, and physical beings. And so every part of us is broken. So when we have emotional brokenness or we're angry or something's going on, that affects sexual intimacy and physical brokenness and disease and pain and age and the fact that our bodies are, going, are, are, are not getting better. They're actually going downhill. That affects intimacy at all levels. The fall has touched all of us. And so that's where we find ourselves, and so we all bring that. So the, does the insecurities of a man in work affect him in intimacy? Of course. And so we're all broken because we're sinners. I want to remind you that um, um, Solomon was a broken man sexually. That's who wrote this book. As a matter of fact, he 700, somewhere around, around 700 wives and 300 concubines. That was brokenness. It seems um, he didn't, what we hope to, what we think happened is that there was an understanding kind of came to him and it was wisdom. But polygamy was rampant throughout God's people. And, that, and we'll see that, that nobody's prospered with that because it was outside the God's design for his marriage and, and sex. But Solomon's broken. So when you, the first, very first two verses, my son be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. I mean, it is an impassioned plea that he's talking to his, his son here. So think of that. Be mindful of that. That contextually, even for the studies I led our men, we've already said, I, by the way, men, I was so encouraged by our time around this particular topic. And... Um, uh, we laughed at all of our, when we were first told about sex, and, uh, and, and that was our, kind of our opening question, and, it, and no one of us had, had, had a, a father or a mother come with an impassioned way, pleading with us and to talk about it. It was either on the prudent scale or the perversion we all struggle with. So this is a father 
saying that. And then just remind you of Proverbs, that it is flourishing in a path. So he's, this, this language is to help his people. Remember Proverbs was written. Uh, one of the reasons is it's not a, an exact science or absolute truth. It's the general pathway. And I just want to say, this pathway that we learn about sex and marriage here this morning is a pathway that helps all of God's people flourish, if you understand it. From single to married to all ages... You must, we must mow these truths, and it will help you walk down the path of sexuality, sex, and marriage, and relationships. That's what this path is for. God wants to help. And so, um, so that's our groundwork. So our, uh, this morning, what we'll do in, uh, if in, in the study, those of you who have been doing the Proverbs study, you may have noticed there was an illustration. I didn't even know it was one of my good friends that came up with the illustration years ago. Uh, but it was an illustration or a metaphor likening sex to the uh, comparing it or as a metaphor of to the metaphor of fire. All right, so that's going to be our outline. Here's what we mean. So, fire is an incredibly powerful creation and beautiful creation of God, and when it is in its right parameters, if it's in within its right boundaries and held and harnessed within the boundaries that are created for a fire. So think of a hearth or a fireplace, when it's in there, it is incredibly powerful and good. Think about what fire does. It, it cooks, it purifies things, it even builds, when we harness and furnaces fire, it builds production and bends metals. It's incredibly useful and beautiful and powerful when it has the appropriate boundaries of a hearth, right? But outside of that hearth, fire can be extremely destructive. And without its boundaries, it's a destructive because it's equally as powerful and it can be powerful and be useful within its boundaries or it can be powerful outside of it. So um, uh, that's kind of our outline. That's right. We're going to look at the fire within the hearth. And that's in some of our passages here in verses 15 uh, through 18. And then we're going to look at the, uh, the fire outside of the hearth and then the fire from heaven. Let me pray. God, would you, um, would you grant us your word uh, empower. Would you grant us uh, moldable hearts? Would you grant us healing hearts to be healed that desire to be healed? Would you grant us hopeful hearts? Would you grant us teachable hearts? Would you let this particular um, would you let this particular morning be that of glory and power? And uh, Lord, and sometimes we need your extra presence, like it says in Psalm forty-six, that you're a great, ever-present. Uh, ever present in my time of need, that you sometimes you're extra present. So I pray for that this morning. I don't know why I don't ask for it every morning, but it seems, Lord, this topic with all that's around it, and you know what we're like uh, in relating to it. We need your help. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so fire inside the hearth. The fire inside the hearth. The first thing to do is we got to define the hearth from our uh, uh, define the hearth. And the verses we'll be looking at uh, here is from 15 through uh, 19. This is where the fire is inside of the hearth, if you will. And so, what uh, what is the hearth? And so, just in in, in uh, understanding the whole Bible and what's being depicted here, it's a kind of a zoom in here. But the hearth itself, that is the thing that contains this fire when it's useful, it is the institution of marriage. And so uh, you notice that he says it's a wife. Look to your wife in that way. So the institution of marriage is kind of the all the bricks and mortar that go around fire and make it useful. It's within the hearth or the institution of marriage that fire is the most 
most um, uh, glorious and beautiful in what's meant to be. And so where do you get that from? Uh, uh, what is, let's define the, the institution of marriage, what we'd say the biblically is. And so even in our passage here, it's a man with a woman. And so the institution of marriage, the, the hearth is uh, marriage and sex is intended between one man and between one woman. All right? That's what it's for. The other thing is, is that, that the, you see the oneness there. Um, and I hadn't had time to look at that. I, I've wondered all week if uh, the wife of your youth, I didn't get to do that. I wondered if he was thinking, Solomon was thinking of his first, right? Uh, but the idea, but here, notice the oneness of it that is single. So it's the singularity throughout the passage. In verse 17, it says, let them be for yourself alone. Rejoice in the wife, the wife, the definitive article, the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always, not in everyone's love, in her love. So he mentions her wife, and so it's a man and a woman is the institution of marriage. It's not uh, any, anything out there. As a matter of fact, I think during the pandemic, someone in New York City married their pet. That wouldn't be a biblical uh, marriage, right? So it's between a man and a woman. It's one, and um, uh, it's one woman and one man. And then the other thing uh, that defines the institution of marriage, which is really important to understand, um, we'll see this in a minute, but this is, there's language there of uh, uh, let, uh, letting rejoice is a prayer of the Father. He says, let the Lord bless this, in a sense, let the blessing come to it. And, um, and this is what the institution of marriage throughout the scriptures kind of let us know, is that marriage also in its essence is a covenant. So it's between a man and a woman, one man, one woman, and in its essence it's a covenant. This is the, the covenant, and those truths of the institution are what make the hearth, the boundaries that hold in the fire. Now, when I use the word covenant, and it's really important, so tune in. This word is an important word. When we hear that word, we think, wow, can't you come up with a more better word than covenant? Uh, because that's sort of an archaic word, right? No. It's harder, hard to find a better word than that, a more scriptural word. And so let me define why covenant is the boundaries or the hearth that really is holds this in. And so there's not a better word. And so we're a consumer culture, and our culture thinks of marriage as sort of in two ways, uh, contractually and sometimes contractually and sometimes feelings, all right? And covenant is better than both of those, contract or feelings. Let me just say that. It's richer and it's fuller. It actually has both the elements of feelings and covenant in it, but the word covenant is more than those. But first, let's just think about the contract. Uh, what do we mean by a contractual uh, way of thinking about marriage? So, um, and, and imagine you own a restaurant, and you ordered, uh, you picked a supplier for your food, and for a period of time, you liked that food, and you entered in that contract. Now, that contract, a contract in its design, is self-focused. Contracts are saying, if, if I like what you're doing, then I will keep my side of the contract. It's only thinking about self on that part, right? And so that's a normal way we function in the world. Contracts aren't bad in and of themselves. Contracts is not what marriage is, okay? But contracts would say, so the restaurant owner would say, at some point they said, well, I don't like what this food is. I've actually found a better supplier with better food. Then we would change the contract because the contract is negotiated according to my needs. Do you see that? So in a sense... 
meaning you're a consumer. And people live uh, contractually and even think Mary, thinking Mary is a contract, thinking that it is, um, uh, that you go into it. And it's actually probably the way most of our culture dates in thinking the way I encounter people is to think about how my needs are met. It's a contractual approach, a consumer approach. Um, you see that that would be terrible for marriage because you're always marketing yourself. I don't hold up my end, well, I'll lose my contract. Uh, statistics, I came across this, I have a hard time finding it, but even statistics say that those who live in and try out marriage have a live in for a period of time before they're married, their divorce rate's higher than those that are because it, the whole relationship, you say, I want to move in and try marriage for a while and, or see if we're compatible, it becomes a contractual agreement and you're always living As if you're being marketed. Am I doing enough to be loved here? So it's neither a contract. Um, but then also the feelings, right? And feelings, um, uh, we defined uh, uh, marriage. We think that the hearth that holds it in is our, fi- our feelings. But feelings, they really do come and go. And their self-feelings still are self-focused, right? It's like, how do I feel? How does this person make me feel? Although great feelings come from a covenant and enter into that, and feelings aren't bad in themselves. As a matter of fact, we should, as Presbyterians, we got to get better at having feelings when we worship, right? But the feelings are not the hearth that keep, that keep the fire in control. It's the covenant does. It's not a contract, nor is it the feelings. Last night I was at the Christmas parade, and I think I smelled Cajun fries. That's what Madison and I said. I smell something good. Somebody's cooking. I'm hungry. It's dark. And I smelled them, and they made me feel good. I wanted them, but I felt like I wanted and needed the Cajun fries, right? But I could have been sick last week, and that very smell could have made me feel bad as well. And if I smell all kinds of smells, I sort of have some feelings kind of go with it. Does that make sense? Feelings come and go. We know that. We understand that as parents. That is one of the things that helps us understand. Parenting is loving someone who can't return it. And they, the feeling, <laughs> they, don't, they don't help sometimes. It's a, it, 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 they don't return anything. And feeling says, I'm looking for you to return something to me. Um, so it's neither a contract or feelings, but it's a covenant. And so the covenant is the thing that holds it in. The covenant says this. A covenant is um, just like in Genesis 2. When I remember when we said they were naked and singing and God was there? Well, they did. It, it's self-giving. A covenant says, says, I bind myself to you regardless. So it's thinking of you. See, contract thinks of self, what you're doing for me, but the covenant says, I see you. And by the way, the only way what we believe as Presbyterians in our covenant theology is that the only way God relates to his people is through covenants. Right now, if he is relating to you through a covenant that he has bound himself to. And if you remember Genesis 12, when the covenant was established and they tore an animal in half, they would say it was some kind of contractual, it was more contractual, and they made a covenant for, to bind something. And they would tear an animal in half, and then uh, both parties would walk through the torn animal as it bled. And what they were saying was, if I don't keep my contract, 
then uh, death, what happened to this animal, would come to me. And both parties would walk through. But in Genesis, we learn, you remember, when the, uh, in the vision there that was with Abraham, that the, that the animal was torn in half, and the fiery pot went between the animal. But, but Abraham didn't. Only God went between the torn animal. And what was he saying in that covenant? Which here's the depth of the covenant, right? Here's what he was saying. He was saying, God was saying, if I don't remain faithful to you, Abraham, and this promises, then death would come to me. But then he also said, and if you aren't faithful, Abraham, then death will come to me. That's the gospel. Because you and I are covenant breakers. So marriage is a covenant in that way. It's saying it's self-giving instead of self-seeking. That's at its essence. And it's, it does have a, 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 a legitimate Boundary and declaration that is before God and before people. And that's why we do marriage and we make vows and those things. But the essence of them is that. And so it is within that, that's the hearth. So what is the fire like within the hearth? If that's the hearth and what's the fire in it? What's going on? What makes it hot? Well, our passage shows us uh, this way. And, and first you'll see in verse 15, and here we get to some of it. In verse 15, uh, the cistern and, uh, and there, that is, uh, verse 15 is the sexual imagery for the woman. So the, uh, uh, the uh, well and cistern is one that you, you, water is inside of and it goes inside and it's just the imagery for a woman, a sexual woman. That's the imagery he's painting there. And then notice in, um, in 16 and 17 that there's a fountain there and that's, the, that's male imagery. Now I'm going to laugh here. Uh, uh, I want to give you a, <laughs> a funny providence. So when I was doing my, uh, I was like, how do you explain that verse and the imagery of that one, right? I mean, that's what you're wondering. But, uh, and so the imagery of 15 is for the woman. The imagery of 16 and 17 is the man, right? And so <laughs> in, my, uh, in my notes, I accidentally spelled male, M-A-I-L. It's male imagery. And so I thought, oh, <laughs> and I was like, well, wait a minute. It's the, it's the, what is the imagery? He's delivering the male, M-A-I-L. That's what it means. He, some places he could either deliver the male in the uh, wrong Wrong places, the wrong address outside, or he can deliver the mail to his wife. Isn't that funny? So the Lord has a sweet funniness in that. Some of you are catching up in that one. That's okay. And so ask your spouse to define that to you when you get later. But he's delivering the mail. That's the imagery, right? And this is God. And there's a little eroticness to that, all right? And that's the point, because he made it. And so you see that, and then it moves to um, verse 18. And so this, this, this fire has rich imagery Enrich uh, idea to, to, to communicate the point. And notice in verse uh, 18 is that let us your fountain be blessed. Talking to the man, he's praying for his son to be blessed in this and rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's a prayer, a petition of God. Let blessing come down to this and it's worshipful language. And so it's a rejoicing. Rejoice, rejoice. Oh. I mean, it is that kind of language. That's what he's saying for them to do. And then notice uh, that, um, and then he enjoys her body. And then the language is he'd be intoxicated always with her love. That Hebrew word there is like a drunken stupor. It literally translates that, that, to be stumbling in a street. So that she is so, you are so caught up in her and you are so together that it is worshipful. And is a, that's, a, that's a hot fire in the hearth. Do you see that? I know everybody's like, what does it mean by a doe and a deer? Man, that's not great. Well, how's that encouraging or whatever? All right, so you got I know everybody wants to know. Well, well little, 
In ancient times, uh, particularly biblical times, what they commonly did to express love, they would use animals that were of beauty to them in their culture to say what you look like in love. Now, today it doesn't make sense to you. I know if you're a woman, I said, hey, baby, you look like a deer. Like, they got pointy noses and weird shape. And what are you talking about? Well, get this, in 1 Solomon 1, uh, Solomon refers to a, uh, his wife as a mare among the chariots of horses, uh, among the Pharaoh's chariot of horses. A mare, a horse. You want to be a horse? <laughs> he was saying, among the chariots of horses and their strength and power, you're the one that everyone would long for because if you put male, uh, a female mare among it. So anyway, that's what they meant. It meant that you were beautiful. I don't know. I, I didn't have time to come up with what, how do we say you're beautiful today, but that was the point. It's so celebratory and romantic and loving. And listen, the ancient world didn't think of marriage or love this way. The ancient world thought of marriage in this way. It was, it was, a, it was a way to get status, who you married. It was a way to um, create an offspring, to have, a, to have children. And everything else that was pleasurable or enjoyable, you did that wherever you wanted to. But God is saying the real enjoyableness. Actually, our passage is saying if you do it wherever you want to, it's not, it's not what it's meant to be. And so it was great. great. For so th- with those of us who grew up with prudency being our lens, this was an intoxicating. But what makes it so powerful and hot, what gives it the fire, the, the intensity of it, is um, there's a few things. What makes it burn so bad? So why, why can it be so enjoyable? Well, there's a few reasons. Um, the first one is this, is that you and I are image bearers. And we bear image of God's intimacy. We actually bear, the, in the same word oftentimes in Hebrew, is, remember the word uh, uh, that the Bible said when it referred to someone having sex in the Old Testament, it said, and he knew her. And the same thing used in John 17, 3, where it says that, and this is eternal life, that you may know Christ. It was gnosko. It was an innocent, in sense, erotic, if I may say, knowledge. And we were made to know and, and have this kind of knowledge, the kind of knowledge that the Trinity has of each other, a celebratory, worship-rich thing. So that's why it's so hot. We're image bearers, and we're bearing the intimacy of God. Remember, that was what was in the beginning. And, um, but the other reason is marriage. Remember, marriage was also the institution, even post-fall. Now that Christ has to save his people, it's still the institution that's designed in Ephesians 5 to be a picture of the gospel. So if you see a husband, you should understand the gospel better of how Christ loves the church. If you see a woman, you should know, learn more about how the church esteems Christ. And their relationship is the institutions that, but guys, what that's saying is there is heavy, heavy, hot weightiness to, the, to marriage. This is why it burns hot, and this is why it's so worshipful, and why it's so parent. So, uh, and then lastly, within the gospel, why does it burn? Is because it, it's portraying, that, that can kind of be summarized in the idea of oneness, um, the same language that is used for us to be in Christ, this profound mystery is what does it mean for God's people to be literally one and in Christ? That language is used for the oneness of marriage. And under the covenant, when someone enters to a covenant of marriage, they, there is some, a profound mystery here. 
and um, that, that they, it compares to that of being in Christ. God has assigned something unique to the marital intimacy that's different than any other relationship in that sense. And so it, um, it is given to that. And so we're one in every way. Just as we are one in Christ in every way, and he is our king in all parts of our life, and, it, and he demands all parts of life, you're in marriage or in oneness. And whenever that oneness is violated, it hurts really, really bad. It is so integral and so a point. Remember, we even this week in our Proverbs 7 study, we, laugh, we didn't laugh. We talked about, it says in Proverbs 7, that the husband whose wife has been adulterated with someone else, his rage no one can control, and you can't bribe him. You want to know why his rage is great? Because of the weightiness of what marriage is. The scriptures were telling us what it's like. And so it hurts incredibly hard. Listen, my dad... His experience with my mom dying this year is far more unique and different because he was married to her than me as a son. He was profoundly one with her in the Christ. And so, therefore, it hurts in a deeper way for him. And that is the fire. Do you see that? I mean, if it's harnessed within the covenant, that, all that oneness is in this place. And so sex is one aspect of our oneness. And by the way, sex is at its greatest is when, God's, when, when people in marriage are working on their oneness. So if you're not working on your oneness emotionally, spiritually, financially, in all areas of life, then you can't be one great in sexual and intimacy. And you understand, you and I understand that, that it works that way, right? What if I were to tell you that I'm married to Brittany in every aspect of my life, but I have one girl that I am, or one person, one woman, that I am more closer to spiritually than I am to her. And me and this woman, we pray all the time, but she knows all that. She's my accountability partner and all that. We have a oneness that's really, really neat. And so, but I'm married to Brittany. We're not having sex, but we're just talking about deep spiritual things. How do you think Brittany would feel? Or what if there was a, 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 someone that she was financially with and we didn't really do that? In one area of finances, she got all of her money and everything and it was separate from me and she lived and they only talked about finances. Or, you see that? Anything that rivals the oneness affects us. And by the way, it can be jobs, it can be hobbies, anything that you worship and connect to other than, than the preeminence of your marriage, if it rivals it, because of God's design for it, it affects us in great big, big ways. And so it burns deeply within us. And so just a couple of thoughts from in application to that. Is that um, if you're married and you're like, these verses don't describe us, it's okay. The Lord's holding out a path, something we're to be working towards. Join the, join the club. And, um, and the hope to, to work towards that and to do it. Some of you, it may be, some marriages, it may be just, there is a hopefulness. God designed it. Maybe it's like, this is, oh, I know what we're going after here and what it should be. Pursue oneness. And in single and looking for dating, if you're single or young, and in that, this is a little bit of a warning. You can see, you can see in, in dating that to Practice oneness or singleness, practice oneness with other people violates the covenant of marriage. And so that's really hard to help people date and not be practice being one because that oneness is intended for that. But that's hard to figure out. Brittany does a whole class on that next week on dating and all that. She'll be teaching that next week. 
Um, I'm kidding, huh? But the um, but also notice that um, verse 18 is when I told you it was a prayer of the Father. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife. He's asking a blessing to come down. See, he's he's asking for a blessing to come from the giver. And so, if you're single, and here's the reality. The giver is what sexual intimacy points to. And if you have, it's a good gift from him. It's just, it's, 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 a, it's a gift that's not, it's not as great as the giver himself. And if you're a follower of Christ and have a relationship with him, then you, have, you will be fine without Christ. Jesus was not married. And he had full bliss and full knowing and understanding. You don't need this in order to have the love and experience that the, uh, if you will, the ecstasy of what it means to be known and loved by God. And so don't believe the lies that the world tells us towards that. And um, I also think it's appropriate just to, as we experienced in this Advent season, to think about marriage and what it was created for and what it's not. And that's why we have Advent. Lord, I look forward to the day when this whole thing is healed in every direction, my, my heart and inwardly in all places around this. All right. So the outside the heart, uh, we return to that. And I should be able to move through this a little, a little quicker to wrap us up here. But the fire, that's inside the heart. The fire outside the hearth is destructive. If you see there in verse 5, it's destructive in its nature. So anytime this fire sex is taken outside, that insta, those boundaries of that hearth, then it's destructive. Uh, and notice here, as he's encountering, this boy is encountering, this young man is encountering a woman. Notice what verse 5, the image says, her feet go down to death and her steps follow the path of Sheol. So she's, it looks like it might be inviting, but it's connected to hell and destruction outside, going away from your, uh, this uh, this mistress to do something outside of what God designed. You see Sheol and death and hell. It looks like a person and it looks okay, but it's really rooted in all of hell because it's outside of God's design. You see the destruction. That's where he's warning. Verse that he says, but look in the inner, uh, verse four, uh, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. So the wormwood there is a poison. Would have been a root and a poison. So it's poisonous to do it. It looks like honey, but it's poisonous. And um, the screw tape letters, I'm reading through that again this, this year. And the screw tape letters, you remember the young son that C.S. Lewis's book, Screw Tape Letters, it's the devil's talking and who's the little apprentice? His name is Wormwood. Right? He's a devil. It's destroying. He's writing to Wormwood to help him know how to destroy God's people. So it's poisonous, and it's destruction outside of that. And then notice the cry. What he says, it was cry. I wondered if Solomon or whoever had cried this at some point in his life to cry this very thing. And at the end of your life, you groan. And when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, meaning I hated the hearth. I didn't listen to God that there was a hearth for fire. I took it outside of that. And how I hated discipline in my heart, despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin. Do you see that? In the assembled congregation, that it can bring great, great, great ruin for God's people at this place. And so in this, in this congregation. And then, um, but then notice this, that the, it's not only, it's still, it has destruction outside of it. It's a destructive system. And um, in verse 6, it lets us know that she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So the whole, what it seems he's doing is he's saying, listen, it, 
it may be attractive to your eyes, but he's like, she's going down an unstable path, and so are you. This path is a destructive one. Don't believe that this path is a good path. And we hint at the world system. If you don't think about it, if you don't pause, everyone, if us, we don't pause, it'll seem like honey on the lips, but it's actually wormwood. And so that's the point of the wisdom is to help us discern that it can destroy you. And I told you earlier uh, that the world's view of marriage and ideas, um, of the ancient world, that it was marriage was the idea of gaining status and then also creating. That was the world they were all with. And to understand that world is really similar to ours. And so what, what sex, if, that, if that's your system, here's what happens to sex. Sex is either undervalued or it's overvalued. Okay, And it's undervalued in this, and just that it's a biological, uh, it's just biological, it's undervalued in this way, it's just biological, it's just physical, it doesn't matter. See, so they thought, I need status, and I need, and I need to procreate, but th- it doesn't matter. This is biological. I can take care of these urges because it's just an appetite. And that's what the world tells you. It has no consequences. It's no big deal. By the way, Kevin told me that he did some study last year on all of those who tried to live a life. There's data out there for those who say sex doesn't matter. It's just a physical thing. It's promiscuous, and you just do whatever you want. And eventually, people are coming back after years of doing that and saying, I was, I'm, it was wrong. It has destroyed me. It has ruined my life, and it's, I don't know what to do with it. Because why? We know the Bible tells us we're not just physical beings. And so it, um, so th- it tells us that's that way, and that's what the world will try to say. That's, if, if it is biological, right, then, then you can have a contract. But it's, it's not. It's fullness in that. Proverbs 30, 18 through 20, this is an interesting uh, interesting thing here. Uh, it wasn't in your studies, but it says this. Three things are wonderful to me, for I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with his wife. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. And so it's an interesting, interesting imagery there of the, of the adulteress who has had uh, sex outside of marriage. And what he said, what the proverb is saying, what he's saying here is like, there's things that, I, that are too wonderful for me to understand. But some think that the pattern here, an eagle flies in the sky, but there's nothing, there's no, it doesn't leave a trail behind. And even a, a man can have be uh, in his marriage and there's no baggage to having sex within marriage. He's faithful to his wife. Or even a snake can crawl on a rock and it doesn't leave any damage behind it or a trail as it would in the sand. But that's the way the evil tempters. She eats as if it was just an appetite and it doesn't matter. And he's saying that was a lie. It always leaves a trail. Those are wonderful. But what she says is wonderful is not. It always leaves a trail. And then the, so we undervalue it in so many ways and think it is only that. But then the other way is overvaluing it. And so if um, we overvalue and do we not see that? Many, many times we think if we, uh, what the world is telling us is if you have some sort of, basically if you can find the right kind and type and inventive type of sex in different ways and try it, you eventually, you can find the thing that you're looking for in sexual pleasure. And remember we said we can't. It's a gift that points to the giver. But everyone who drinks from this will always be thirsty again. And yet we overvalue it and define ourselves by it and we lose sight of the giver. We, I mean, that was, that was prevalent of all the time. So, Sex will never 
satisfied, so we overvalue it. So then um, the other system of this system that is of the system, I think, that's on display here, of the world system, the currency of the system was external beauty. It was external beauty. It was all on the outside. Lips, words, eyes. We learn from Proverbs 7, she grabs him, she's playing. Everything is, is external. And the external world has put its chips that people's worth and value are found on their, by their, or, or is, is, is defined by their physical attraction, beauty. That's the currency of it. Proverbs 11, 22 through 23, it's an unusual proverb that we didn't look at as well. But it says, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, and the expectation of the wicked is wrath. And what the system does, the world system, is it, is it offers, we look at the gold ring, and this, I think this is what the proverb's trying to say, that there's a gold ring, and we see it, and it's precious. And you reach for it to grab it, and it's a beautiful gold, and it seems like that. But when you grab it, big old smelly fat hog comes with it. Because you based the worth on the snout, the ring in the snout, and not on the whole person. And that is what happens. It's the terrible system. Remember, this is destruction, and the woman is using her beauty because she's believed the world, so she's using her beauty to trap the husband and to get what she wants, and he's using his sight to go after and drive him what he's doing. Do you see the currency is the looks and the beauty and the external only without with complete disregard? It's as if they live for the snout and they don't realize that it's a pig all the time. And so many, but now, it's interesting. You say, well, is my wife and my marriage partner supposed to be pretty to me? Of course. But it's interesting that this proverb doesn't mention, he just goes to her, he's one, doesn't tell her how his wife looks. And if marriage is covenantal, when you covenant yourself to someone, feelings and love come deeper. It may be, you may feel something in the beginning and say, okay, now i got to not be disduped by that. And then, but then, I, I do I want to covenant myself to them? But when we are covenantal, emotions deepen. I give it a thing. I had a deep love and passion to see God work at Danville School System. I know this is weird. Follow me. All right? Parmy's like, it, that place is driving me crazy. They can't get the administration straight. They get hurt. My kids have got pain from going to that school, and yet I find myself still praying for them and loving them. You want to know why? Because at some level in my heart, I've executed a covenant towards them. And I've said, despite who you are, we're going to come after you. And what does that foster in me? More feelings of love. Love that I can't explain even when they hurt my own children. Because there's something to the covenant, and that covenant is with a person. And so the obsession with beauty and the external is wrong. 
And some psychologists say that the reason we're obsessed with beauty is because we all feel dirty on the inside. We have internal ugliness and we know it. And so we work on the outside. I forgot where I read that. But that makes sense with Genesis 3. They ate the fruit and they covered the outside. They didn't immediately turn old and elderly. When they ate the fruit, inwardly they became dirty. And so they started trying to fix the outside. And yet, what does our Savior do? When he came to us, he's, he's reorienting us to the system and the world of where real love and the value is found, particularly in marriage and sexual intimacy. And so, kids, I'm saying, don't value looks too high. Don't buy into the world system. It will destroy you. What does Isaiah 53 actually tell us about Christ? That there was no beauty to him that would cause us to look upon him. Nothing, matter of fact, we were despised him and rejected. What's the verse say? <laughs> he was not attractive in beautiful in external form. Have you ever thought about even why? I don't know this. Glenn, you're a better theologian than me. Why maybe the last part of redemption is the physical body? Like, I'd like to get that body now. <laughs> but Jesus so loved us that he's even, even the way he saved us, he was turning our upside down of our notice for that. He emptied himself of his beauty, and he was despised so that he might come make us who really were ugly on the inside to make us beautiful on the inside. And one day he says, I'll fix the outside, but the inside was what he was after. And so, by the way, to finish, I know it's been long. I figured it would be. Um, the fire from heaven that actually helps us in all this is that if you don't do this, it doesn't matter what area of your life, including the sexual part of your life in marriage or including being single and being okay where you are, which Paul said it was better to be single, so you're not missing out or any way. But neither the one of them will ever be good unless you remember that you're actually married to someone all of us are. And that we're married to someone and Christ is our groom. That we're all in a marriage. And that is the first and foremost love of your heart. So sex will never be good. That's why Proverbs 1, 7 was true. All in intimacy is where wisdom comes from. And so what God wants you to do in the marriage that we have with him, which will take over one day and we won't physically be married anymore, is what does he want? He wants us to be intoxicated with him the way that we're intoxicated. He wants us to think of him first. And he wants us to think in everything, how, whatsoever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That's why we pray before we eat. We're saying, I may eat, but this is a small meal compared to my first love and how it satisfies me. He longs to love us and for us to enter into that with him. He invites us into that love, and it is that love that actually gives us the power to walk down the path of sex in this world. You forsake that, you'll be destroyed. The system that the world has will win you over. And it's a path of great energy. So 
We talked periodically for a moment this morning about sex and that particular gift. But this Christmas, that type of intimacy is what we all have. We have the bliss of the marriage that we have with Christ. May that be chief. Let's pray. God, would you, um, would you help us to believe, Lord, that... Um, I feel, Lord, I feel like I took a, a spoon to the ocean to try to drain it today, to think about the depth and the breadth of all of what sexual intimacy and marriage and all those things are to be. And yet, would you mercifully, what was said this morning, would you reorient us as a people to the, our first marriage with you? And may that begin, if, may we fall in love with you in another way. May we believe that you loved us so much that you came after us. And that you, uh, what, the, what Christmas tells us is that we were so loved that you were willing to humble yourself and be born in a manger as a child with animals smelling around and trough and be humble yourself because you considered us. Your love was extravagant for us. And so would you, let, would you rejuvenate us to that love in this time? And may it begin to seep out into all areas. May God, I pray that you would bring hope to all marriages. We all need it. I pray that you would bring hope and satisfaction to all singleness. And all the young kids here that don't even understand it and those that are in the middle of it. God, it is really, really hard to live in this world. But they believe that your path, and what we all believe that your path is a path of flourishing. I ask these things for your people in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please.